Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. The Telegraph's lockdown files have been all over the British press lately. The story is based on leaked WhatsApp group messages sent by former Health Secretary Matt Hancock to his Conservative peers during the coronavirus pandemic. The journalist at the centre of the storm, Isabel Oakeshott, has been adamant and even quite combative in her position that she was acting in the public interest. People want to know the truth. If I have to take a bit of a kicking for that, that is fine. I'm big enough to take it. I want to put this out there. It is the right thing to do. The Telegraph has done a magnificent job and there's much more to come. Isabel speaking there to Channel 5 News. Well, I'm delighted to be joined by James Ball today, a journalist closely involved in one of the most legendary cases of whistleblowing. You might have heard of it, Cablegate by WikiLeaks. We're going to be talking about the wider implications of the lockdown files for journalism at large. The big questions we're asking today is whether this will have a knock-on effect on the trust of sources and audiences and the precedent this could have if Matt Hancock decides to sue. That's all coming up. Don't go anywhere. James, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. Thanks ever so much for coming on to the show. Pleasure to be here. James, our audience will, of course, know you as a journalist closely involved um, in the WikiLeaks um, um, saga. <laughs> uh, st- saga. Let's put, let's use the word saga. But something that maybe they they don't know about you is that you can't ride a bike. Tell us a bit more. So, yeah, it's uh, it's one of those where you know other people here. It's as easy as riding a bike and get reassured. I I sort of think years of miserable failure and uh, why my father can't look me in the eye. Um, it's just one of these things where. Um, we had like a road closed when I was a kid when I was about six and so my mum used it to try and teach me how to uh, cycle and you know the nice bit in sort of every film montage where they, 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 they're holding on to the back of the bike and they let go and the kids cycle I would just immediately fall off every time and so we gave up for about a decade and then my um, my brother tried again when I was about 15 when I was on holiday um, and he's he's quite a lot older, and he was just like, oh, of course you'll be able to, be no bother. Um, and honestly, by the time by the time he gave up, he he just couldn't speak. He was so frustrated, <laughs> and so he just went straight off to the bar in silence. Uh, and so I haven't tried again after that. But maybe you focused your efforts elsewhere instead. So, well, yeah, hopefully I'm good at other things, but uh, because, you know, if journalism doesn't work out, I definitely can't do Deliveroo. (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. The Telegraph's lockdown files are based on 100,000 WhatsApp messages obtained by the journalist Isabel Oakeshott, who got her hands on the information as part of a ghostwriting book deal. She broke a non-disclosure agreement, a legally binding confidential agreement between two parties, to publish the messages to the world, implicating many other politicians in the process. To break an NDA requires an exceptionally high criteria, higher in cases involving privacy than defamation. Isabel Oakeshott had an obligation to keep the messages confidential, meaning the best defence is gone. Now the only defence for breaking it is public interest. Ipso, the leading UK press regulator, does have a range of definitions for public interest, such as protecting public health or safety, or perhaps the better argument here, revealing unethical conduct or incompetence concerning the public. The test will be whether the lockdown files hit the bar, which James isn't convinced will happen. You know, I think to start, you've got to give it some credit as a story. It's it's interesting. 
you know, they, they're generating conversation, they're generating debate, people are reading it. You know, I don't think the Telegraph made a mistake going big on this. I think where there are questions is, you know, is this just interesting or is it in the public interest? Um, you know, Isabel's very obviously screwed someone over in order to publish these. You know, she she was not given them by a source who wanted her to publish them. She essentially reneged on a ghostwriting deal. Um, and so whether the stories are sort of sufficiently significant that if the Telegraph was sued or if Oakshot was sued, they'd win, I think is a much bigger question. Um because they're they're interesting, but they haven't it's not like they've revealed criminality or some big thing that wouldn't otherwise come out. So I think there's a bit of an ethical question mark hanging over it and maybe a legal question mark as well. Super interesting. And lots of stuff there to maybe pick up on further down in, in, in this conversation. But what I'd really like to ask you just to maybe kick things off is when you have got sensitive information in front of you, what really goes through your head as a journalist? You know, what what really are those priority points that you think about? I mean, you you tend to get a little bit of an initial thrill. You know, let's be honest. If you suddenly have a whole bunch of documents that you think are going to be interesting and reveal something, you sort of have a little excited moment. Um, but then you've you've got quite a lot weighing on you because we've got quite a lot of laws around privacy and data protection and all of this. So you sort of need to, before you actually look at anything, you need to know what your legal position is because when these stories are high risk, you know that there's a chance you're going to have to explain it in court. If material's classified, you might be committing a criminal offence. Your documents might reveal your source, so you need to think about what risks your source has taken. You know, are they risking losing their job? Are they risking prison? Or are they just risking, you know, some public shaming? So you've got those way-ups to do. And, you know, if we get data or information at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, where I work at the moment we actually do a public interest test before we even look at material. Um, And that's a much lower bar than when we publish, Um, you know, but you do have to go, especially if material's hacked or if it's got in some questionable way, is there a public interest in looking at this? And then when you're in there, you have to go, is the public interest strong enough to publish it? Is that because, and just to pick up on that, so you're not swayed after the fact and like, and to be more persuaded to publish it if you haven't necessarily got the criteria in mind? If you are just going into any old material just because you, you're interested in it, you know, pruriently, you might not qualify for the journalism exemptions uh, on data handling, etc. It's also partly an ethical thing. There's quite a lot of material that, you know, this doesn't apply to the Telegraph, but... Material sometimes gets hacked and posted online. You know, Hillary Clinton's emails did, etc. And if you just willy-nilly go through any of it, you might be rewarding criminal behaviour. You know, you are intruding on someone's privacy when you go into these documents. And so it's good to have set out a rationale for why you're doing that. And it shows that you are genuinely trying to be responsible journalists rather than trying to tick a a box on a form to sort of help you in court right and then if you have mentally cleared yourself to look at that if you're i don't know if i pull up the code of practice in front of me right now protecting public health or safety let's say that 
you know, as you're then going through those documents, what are your responsibilities and what are your priorities at that stage? I mean, when you, when you go through, you're looking for a story. Um, and that usually means you're looking for wrongdoing or, um, I mean, public interest does also cover incompetence. If you can show that people were just acting cluelessly when they should have been preventing a disaster or something, that's clearly there. And so there's this simultaneous thing of trying to look for something that makes good copy you know, that will make an article people want to read and talk about, um, but that also does satisfy those criteria. And the bars set in different places for different stories. You know, when we were looking at Snowden material, we felt the bar had to be quite high to publish because we were publishing actual classified documents. Um, and so there was loads of stuff in there that was really interesting um but that didn't really have a public interest justification and we actually left left all of that unpublished you know we we got a lot of flack at the guardian for sort of how much we published um but i think in the end we put out about extracts of about 80 documents where we had tens of thousands a quick one from me and then we'll get back to the chat with james Catch up with your peers and learn about the latest journals and innovations at our next News Ride conference on the 23rd of May 2023 at News UK in London. To grab your ticket, head over to newsride.com and we'll see you there. I'd be remiss not to ask you this, but if you were Isabel, if you were, say, a freelance journalist and you had access to the information she did prior to publishing, what would you have done? I think, I think for this particular situation... I would have felt very ethically dubious about using material I had got for a book ghostwriting arrangement to use it in this way. You know, if Isabel Oakeshott came to me and said, you know, James, I I had loads of uh, concerns about what I saw when I was ghostwriting, you know, can can I give you these WhatsApps as an anonymous source? I'd say yes, and I'd I'd look into them. Um, I think doing it yourself as she has I think that does cross some boundaries and I don't think I would do that I think the decision for the Telegraph's quite different you know they've got a journalist coming to them saying they've got interesting material um I think there's a good story in there I think they're probably taking a legal risk that other newspapers might not um because while they're very interesting I'm not sure that they meet the thresholds either for Ipso or for the courts on on public interest. So what I sense from there is there's a difference between publishing it firsthand and the, or versus secondhand. Yeah, I mean any any sort of document leak means that someone's betraying someone's trust. Um but it's a little bit like, you know, we will consider using hacked material but that's very different from us as journalists going out and getting people hacked. You know, we don't we don't commission phone hacking, you know, anymore. That's that's uh, very much verboten in the industry now. On the rare occasions where a journalist has been found to hack into someone's email, etc., they've they've been fired. Um, and so sometimes sources do things like that, and then as you know, the journalists if they had no role in commissioning the illegal activity or the the morally questionable activity could use it. I think in this instance, you've got the strange situation where Isabel Oakeshott 
is being both the source and the reporter. Both the journalist and the whistleblower, right? It's it's a bit odd. Ex- exactly. It's it's quite a, a strange crossing of the wires. Strange crossing of the wires. I mean, I sense from your answer you're not convinced about the public interest element here. Is there anything in there that could have been revealed that would have changed your mind and, and if you were Isabel would have gone live with it yourself? Um I mean, it's difficult to say, you know, as as we record this, we think that they're, they're still publishing. I think the the difficulty for them on public interest is that these email, these WhatsApps had already been handed over to an ongoing public inquiry. And so they don't just have to show that what's in there is important or significant or tells us something about COVID. They've not given the official channels the chance to look at it already. You know, they've jumped the gun. They've just decided to sort of declare a lack of faith in the inquiry process, which I think a judge would look quite unfavourably on. And so, you know, contributing to a matter of public debate is in the Ipso version of public interest. It's been argued in court. Whether this debate was so urgent that it justified the breaches of privacy and confidence... I mean, the Telegraph clearly think they have a case to argue or they wouldn't have published it. But I wonder how much they're just relying on assuming that uh, Hancock won't want to bring bring a lawsuit, which I suspect would probably be correct. I think most of what's in there is more interesting than shocking. You know, I can't look at something and go, you know, bloody hell, you know, how could they have done that? Privacy is treated very seriously in UK courts, not least because it's a human right to have privacy of personal correspondence. Thinking back to the lockdowns and the coronavirus pandemic, the whole world was plunged into a health emergency. The UK government was not alone in being faced with a massive challenge. What does this invasion of privacy really reveal? It shows difficult decisions being made on the basis of politics rather than science, and callous attitudes towards the public. But it also shows the government doing what we know them to do, trying to find the most flattering PR spin for their announcements and public apologies. Was this really worth the price of a potentially dangerous precedent? I mean, unusually for me with with this particular government, but I have a little bit of sympathy for them as well, because they were working, you know, they were working well off, off the map of normal business as usual. They were trying to deal with a crisis that no one in living memory has dealt with before. Um you know, they, they were working in these exceptional circumstances and people need a pressure valve. You know, people are going to vent a little bit and rant a little bit. And, you know, I've I've said worse than this on WhatsApp. Uh, please, please no one leak mine. But, you know, I, I think I sort of actually feel a little bit sorry for them, to, to my surprise. Um, but literally where I would like to go with this is is the precedent where this maybe goes to court. Um, and if Hancock does sue, what what could be the, the the precedent if that happens, James? It's a phrase called "bad cases make bad law," and so on privacy, there was a an awful Bloomberg case uh, against ZXC because the the other party is anonymous, um, and it's a case that a lot of people kind of hoped Bloomberg wouldn't fight because they lost. And the precedents of it have made privacy law harder for the media and helps rich and powerful people that we might want to cover. Um, And so 
if the Telegraph fought this case on confidence or on privacy and lost, it might not only affect this situation, it might affect more broad public interest investigative journalism. You know, The Guardian at the moment, for example, is um, looking into Abramovich's finances based on leaked documents, you know, I think given the sanctions and the questions around that, they've got a very clear public interest defence there. But you might find that a precedence from a story like this one could damage the ability to do a story like that one. And so any any potential case in court tends to make journalists a bit nervous uh, or investigative journalists a bit nervous because you don't know how it'll have a knock-on effect to your own work. If it does go to court and he's unsuccessful... Could that have the impact where sources are unwilling or scared to speak to journalists in the future? Um, If he went to court and he was unsuccessful, it might actually help. Um, People could be more confident that journalistic protections exist and the stories could get out. You know, this is a very strange story in terms of wider impacts for sources and journalists because people have sort of referred to it as if it's Isabel Oakeshott screwing over a source. I don't think that's what's happened here. This is Isabel Oakeshott screwing over a client. You know, she was on, in a contractual relationship doing ghostwriting for Hancock and got this material in that context and has used it. Um, so ghostwriters might worry, or people who work as journalists but do, say, commercial copywriting, you know, might their corporate clients be a bit wary of them now? You know, I think there are some specific situations, but I think it's weird enough that I don't think it will make too many sources too nervous. I hope not. You know, if any of my sources are listening, I'm still trustworthy, I promise. Well, this is a good point about the wider implications for other journalists other media will will they be tarnished by the reputational damage to the to the trade as a whole your thoughts on that i i think most journalists are fine um i mean isabel oakshot has a very particular track record on this as well she's you know delivered some very significant political scoops but she did also help put one of her sources in jail James is referring here to a front-page story Oakeshott did in 2011 while at the Sunday Times about Vicky Price, the ex-wife of former Liberal Democrats Minister Chris Hewn, about her taking points on her driving licence for her ex-husband. The pair were both sentenced to eight months in jail for perverting the course of justice. Um, And so, you know, people can't necessarily say that there weren't warnings here. You know, I think most journalism relationships are probably not affected by this. I do know that ghostwriters are a bit worried um, because that really relies on trust and on people giving over as much as possible so that you can sift out what's interesting in it. The person who's being ghosted for can then knock out anything they don't want, you know. And if if you can't trust your ghostwriter to dump it all on the internet or take it to a newspaper, that that might make that harder, especially for journalistic ghostwriters. Exactly right. So you think the damage is really contained to Isabel and, and the Telegraph in this p- particular scenario, but actually journalists who other, find other workers, ghostwriters, could find that work a bit harder now. Yeah. I mean, I honestly, I don't think the Telegraph comes out of this with, with too much harm to their sources. You know, they 
they essentially had someone come to them and with material and then had the choice of do we think this is interesting enough to be worth it or not? You know, none of the Telegraph journalists working on it have screwed anyone over or sort of done anything, I think, too ethically questionable. So I think on a source level, I think, you know, Isabel Oakeshott may have damaged her record, but she's proven very able to bounce back from that before. <laughs> but on a, you know... On a wider journalistic level, I think, you know, hopefully we'll keep we'll keep people's trust. So do you think ghostwriters will now have to work harder to gain the trust of sources? I think so, yeah. I I think ghostwriters are, are right to be nervous. And I, I imagine they're sort of hoping that there's no other incidents in the near future. You know, if they could go a month or two and no one else has leaked from a ghost-written manuscript, um, I think they'll hope it, it maybe just goes away and people stop thinking about it. I mean, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong on this, but my understanding is that an NDA has the clause in it. What, what happens if you kind of break that, um, break that, break confidentiality, and then you're liable to pay the sum that, that's outlined in the contract? That's how US NDAs work. In the UK, people can put that in, but it doesn't really tend to have much force. It's usually something to do with relating to the financial loss or the reputational loss that you cause the person. And that's decided by a judge then? Yeah, and it could also include the repayment of any fee. Although, interestingly, I think Oakshot said she didn't get a fee for ghostwriting. So maybe Matt Hancock's learned that you get what you pay for. Well, I think that was covered by The Telegraph, really. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The the, the fee anyway. But I mean, as journalists continue maybe trying to work as ghostwriters, that maybe that relationship's a bit more difficult here. If Hancock does sue and he's unsuccessful, does that undermine the integrity of NDAs moving forward, though? Um, I think it probably does, but I, I'm quite anti-NDAs, so I think that's a good thing. It's, um, you know, it's... it's. Um, I mean, I, I broke an NDA with WikiLeaks. Well, I refused to sign one because um, uh, I just thought that the irony of being a whistleblowing organisation with NDAs was a bit too great. So I think they often scare people into not whistleblowing or not talking to journalists when they actually could and when they actually have a public interest. So I think people learning that NDAs aren't this watertight, you can never speak again under any circumstances thing would actually be a benefit to the public. I see. That's an interesting moral lesson to come out of this. So yeah, I guess it could be. But yeah, if if people sort of learn NDAs aren't the be all and end all... I'd be quite happy with that. And, and, and be careful about what you give to journalists, I suppose, when, when signing one of signing an NDA. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, um, I, I'm trying to think. Someone, uh, someone in the think tank world, uh, as it all started coming out, um, texted me, uh, it's all very uh, frog and the scorpion, like the, uh, the very old uh, fable. Um, so, yes. Finally, then, just as we look to wrap up this conversation, what do you think really is the big lesson for the media more generally? Journalists may be listening in. What what are the what do we derive out of all of this? What do we learn from this situation? It's probably don't push your luck. I mean, you know, this has shown once again that when you've got a big cache of something, you can make weather with it for a week, for ten days. You know, it's worth pushing resources into these big stories. Investigation still lands. What I'm worried about is, are we going to keep getting bolder and bolder and sort of overstep and eventually publish something 
that crosses the line and gets a public backlash or crosses the line and gets a legal backlash and risks taking down a lot of the good stuff with it. And this might not be that story. This might still be the right side of the public interest line. I I think it's a grey area. I, I certainly wouldn't look at it and go, it definitely isn't. I just can't look at it and say it definitely is. Let's keep doing these big sort of series of stories, but let's not push our luck, eh? James, an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thanks ever so much for jumping on the show. Thank you. So there you have it. The takeaway is not to push our luck. The virality of these stories no doubt shows public appetite for investigative political journalism, but be wary of setting bad precedents in the pursuit of a scoop. Another takeaway, journalists shouldn't worry about this particular case giving the trade and the industry a bad name. But what's your view? Let's keep the conversation going and get your thoughts. Find me on Twitter at jpgjournalism or email me on jacob at journalism.co.uk. You can check out all of our episodes on all your usual podcast platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.